Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. We're recording everything. Because this room is a mess. I'm in a messy room. They'll never know. And I also didn't bathe or anything. I didn't even brush my <laughs> No, they can't smell you either. <laughs> okay, well, that's really a good thing. Well, my hair and, is kind of insane, too. So. And the, my hair isn't, my hair is not, hasn't shown up. Oh, your hair is insane. No, your, saying, insane. your hair is in the closet, I know. My hair is in the It's actually, <laughs> it's, it's actually, uh, it's in the other room. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Joe's is perfect, of course. As always. Yes. Oh, no. it's, uh, it follows All right, so is this good? I mean, I would have even gotten a, a little stand or something. So no, 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 this, is, this is perfectly good. It, it, it's, nobody can see you but us. So as long as we can okay. hear you, we're good. Frame out all of the shit in this room that I've been working on. Uh, well, never mind, it doesn't matter. No, no, there's some, there's some nice Dexter-like uh, uh, plastic sheeting behind it. <laughs> yes, I know. It's a, <laughs> it's a temporary clothing closet, yeah. No, it is a little strange here, but what are you going to do? Anyway, and the gardener who just started, you know, mowing and blowing the moment I called you is, but you don't hear him too much, right? No. Nope. No, it sounds good. Good. Don't, don't hear a thing. You may hear my dog at some point. All right. Well, that, that'll be your fault then. It's the joy of this stuff. Uh, I also, in looking you up, I, you're, from, you're from East Falls. East Falls. Yes, I I'm, am. I'm from West Philly. Oh, my God. West Philly. Yeah, like Powelton Village. I have to drive through East Falls to go visit my sister who lives at uh, Ellen's Lane. Are you, you're not, are you living there now? No, no, no. I'm in oh. LA now. I, I fled in the 80s. Yeah. I, I go back all the time. So where was your, what was your, uh, where was your cheesesteak place? Did you go to, you, you didn't go to uh, Dallas Sandro's. Did you go to Tony Luke's or? Oh, I, I love Dallas. Dallas Sandro's is my current cheesesteak place now. Oh, I love, um, I love Dallas Sandro's. That was my childhood one. But now that I'm a friend of Tony Luke, I have to, uh, everybody uh, is. <laughs> well, I went to high school with the son, <clears throat> uh, Frankie Oliveri, whose father owned Pat's. Oh, I know, I know Frank Oliveri. I used to work for Pat's. When, oh, Pat's, okay. had a lo- when Pat's had a location on Germantown, right off Germantown Avenue. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Was it German and Shelton right around there? Yeah. They had a, they had a store in the, uh, in the late, uh, not even the late seventies in the early seventies. So this, I think my senior, my year between my junior and my senior year, I, I made steak sandwiches at Pat's. Although I, I uh, mostly was, I, I was mostly the, fr- the guy who did the French fries because I wasn't really good at the steak sandwich. And there was a, African-American woman who I had a terrible crush on who was at least 15 years older than me who made the stakes. Um, there you go. Hadn't there you thought go. of it in years. Yes. Hadn't thought of it in years. Indeed. Well, you know, I, uh, but yeah, Dallas Angeles is my place. My brother swears by Steve's. Which I heard, sure I've heard of Steve's. And then the one on South Philly. Do you ever go to uh, Jimmy's, I guess, in South Philly? Have not I think been. It's Jimmy's. Have not been. Anyway, I know Tony Luke, so I can arrange a meeting with. Oh, that would be great. Tony. That would be wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. So this week on the cheesesteaks that made me. Uh, <laughs> this is going to this is going to be so fascinating for our our vast uh, listenership that we they have. They love in, this stuff. In the Philadelphia area. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, when do we start? Have we started? We oh, we've been, we've been going. No, we're, we're, we're practically we, done. We print everything. <laughs> this is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Oh, by the way, no, God, no. And then I should also say that uh, it, it, I didn't realize this is the first time I had ever seen you in anything because uh, you just have this sort of you have always been there sort of presence. But the first time I saw you was uh, at the Goldman Theater in uh, a movie Joe directed called The Howling. And it took me years to get over being able to um, enjoy your other performances. Because ah. every time I saw you, there was this tension that i had that this guy's going to do something really truly terrible at any moment and yeah took- well when you start when you be, when you when you shoot yourself in the foot at the very beginning of your career by doing a movie like that joe <laughs> um you know it does it i feel i think a lot of people probably feel the same way it takes a while for them to trust you again in any other role that is correct and uh, for many people it, it's never happened it actually led directly to his star trek stardom you think so? How did that, how's that possible? <laughs> because the fan base is very, very, very loyal and they're very smart and they know, and they remember stuff. Okay. And a lot of people, I mean, we were just talking about, about, uh, you know, Freddy Krueger, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, they, that, that literally put him on the map. I mean, that was, that was his. I remember I, I, I went to an audition for LA law in, gosh, I want to say, 1982 or three, I think. And I ran into Robert England. Uh, he got in the elevator. We were passing each other and spoke for 30 seconds. And he said, hey, I just did this movie, this little movie, Nightmare on Elm Street. And I have the Eddie Quist character, you know, so I, you know, uh, <laughs> but I, all I could, when I was doing it, I was thinking of you and the howling and all that. And I, I think it's pretty good. And then, of course, several billion dollars later, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, well, I'm sorry we weren't able to merchandise you a little better, yeah. but you do get killed. <laughs> and I didn't have to wear, a, I, I wore a rubber head, but only part of the time. You had to wear a rubber head all the time. The whole time, yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Joe, the way I dealt with the theme, and yes. I don't know if you want to start recording now, but. Oh, we've been recording. I, okay. no, we are I'm recording. Okay. We just cut stuff out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So, it's the. Uh, I didn't get a chance to listen to a representative. I don't, how long have you been airing your show? How long has it been on? Uh, we, we, we passed our hundredth guest uh, a couple of weeks ago. So you've had a hundred of these on. You never told me. I never got a link or anything. <laughs> so that's I, I'm going to say this on the air. Joe is so bad at promoting this show. It makes me insane. Well, <laughs> it's not my job. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> and and not being uh, the way I dealt with the, the challenge of the ten movies, mm-hmm. rather than saying my ten favorite movies, I yes. picked ten movies. If I walked through a room and the television was on, and one of these ten movies was on, I would sit down and watch it at any point in in the film. That was the way I decided to to deal with your challenge. You know, I'm not a a film historian. I can't even say I'm a movie aficionado the way you are because you know so much about them that talking about movies to you is a little a little intimidating to me 
Well, just but ignore I just him thought, and talk to me then. Because okay. uh, I, <laughs> I just thought I would pick the 10 movies. I that, think it's a great idea for uh, okay. because we, I, all have, we all have those. We all have movies yeah. that we, like, you just know, oh, I got to watch this. You know. And I also, I, I put my... It's the, it's the purest. I, and I had six runners up after that. So if we get, if we run out of time talking about the two, uh, the, the, the first 10, then I have runners up that some of which I think you love too, Joe. I think it's it's the purest and probably most honest way of getting to, you know, what your favorite movies are, isn't it? Because there's mm-hmm. no, if you're by yourself. I mean, you've already, the mystery is already sort of solved. You've seen it once. You yeah. Know, it's already made its impression on you. And yet it's, it's part of you so, to a point where, oh yeah, this, I love this. <laughs> you're not showing off for anyone. It's just, yeah. it is what. Uh, and also the, ran- the randomness of finding them on TV and by clicking a channel is different than looking at a big stack of uh, DVDs and saying, what do I want to watch tonight? Yeah. It's just, right. a, well, that's, it's the luck that's, of the draw. Yeah. And, and, and I don't rewatch a favorite movie the way a lot of people do say, I haven't seen this movie in three years now, even though the movie's 40 years old or whatever, I'm going to sit down and watch it beginning to end. But I do, I, I, any one of the 10 movies I picked, no matter where it was in the movie, which means I'm familiar enough from having seen it at least, uh, each one of these I must have seen at least twice, and some of them as many as five times, that, that, uh, that I'm delighted to see, to, to pick it up at any point and just to, to join it because it, it, it evokes so many memories of seeing it the first time and they're, also, they're all connected to a different time in my life. Uh, you know that uh, so that it's a whole wave of nostalgia in addition to just the the artistic experience of of, of watching the film itself. It just it just echoes up and down. You know the timeline. Fantastic. So 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 let's so start. do I give just take them? To, yeah. Just do I just give us one and we'll discuss it and in no order. Just yeah, whatever order you got them in. Okay. Well, I'm going to start with one. Um. Young, I would say one of my favorites is A Hard Day's Night. Are you ready? Then brace yourself. Here they are. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, It's, it's kind of ha- mock documentary almost. Um, you know, it's a day in the life of the Beatles at the height of their young stardom. It, it's, uh, it's beautifully shot in black and white. It seems to capture um, each of their individual um, persona very well. It has a, a, a little tiny thin story about Paul's grandfather that we follow. Uh, it has uh, Ringo going rogue in this long, you know, kind of 
ambling section that apparently he was completely drunk when he shot it, I guess, because he was a little nervous about it. But the whole movie is, it's it's fun to watch. It's cut with with obviously some of their great hits of that time period. Sometimes they're performing on a stage. Sometimes like an early music video, they're just running around having a great time. Like when the door slams open and they sing Can't Buy Me Love and mm. burst out of the theater where they're supposed to be rehearsing and just goof off for three minutes, it's got to be one of the most joyful, uh, anarchic, is that, the, is that the correct word? Yep. Anarchic mm-hmm. oh, very, um, yeah. moments of, of youthful, you know, you know, I, nothing can contain me. I know I'm here to do a job, but I'm going to just, I'm going to, I'm going to run outside and, and goof around for three minutes and then come back and do my job. It, it's just, it's a totally fun movie. I think when it came out, I, I, I felt I was probably the perfect age for the movie. I think I was about 13 or 14 years old. It came out during a summer that I was down at the Jersey shore and I went to the little um, theater on the boardwalk. can't remember the name of the theater. And I think I went um, two days in a row and sat through it three times each day. So I think I saw it six times wow. the first two days. And I think that I haven't had that experience with any other movie. And, so yeah, were uh, you were you already, I imagine you were, because people were, you, you were already a Beatles fan? Yeah, I wasn't, yeah. you know, I mean, I had, you know, I had bought, I think, I think the first 45 I ever bought was probably, um, it was either Twist and Shout, the Beatles cover of the Isley Brothers song, or, um, or I saw her standing there. Which, mm. uh, um, oh, yeah. Uh, so, so I was a I was a Beatles fan. I had the little book that I read about them. I don't think I ever had a Beatles wig, or certainly not Beatles boots, because back then my mother had me in orthopedic shoes, and there were no orthopedic <laughs> Beatle boots. But I. I was a, uh, you know, I mean, it was the first kind of, um, what's the word? The first merchandising material that I'd gotten since watching Zorro at age four, when I had the little, <laughs> I had the hat, I had the sword with the with the chalk at the end, so you could make a Z on your, on the, you know, on the outside of your garage, <laughs> and uh, and the mask. So, so I went from Zorro, uh, you know, and then a few years of not buying any stuff, and then and then Beatles stuff. So. A Hard Day's Night, if it was on right now and I walked into the room, it wouldn't matter where it was. I would sit down and watch and watch the rest of it. I'd say to myself, I'll just stay for three minutes and then I right. watch it through the, through the credits. And I just think it's a totally fun movie and, and reminds me so much of being young at that time. Yeah, and it's also, it's so, every time I see it, there's always a moment of adjustment where I go, oh, right, I always forget how fresh it seems for a... God, what is it? Almost sixty-year-old movie now. It just—it feels in a way that other movies from that era, especially other movies about, you know, like you see the Dave Clark Five movie. It's certainly incredibly dated and lethargic, but it just—it feels like they could have made it yesterday, even today. Yeah. It's, it's and that so, has to be a tribute, right, to Richard Lester, Joe, yeah, right? because he sure. was such an accomplished yeah. filmmaker. Yeah. Well, it's uh, his short, the running, uh, jumping, and standing still film. Um, yeah. Is uh, it's 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 a precursor to uh, a lot of what's in Hard Day's Night. I don't even know that. Is that a short that you can see online somewhere? I think so. Running, jumping, and standing still film. I think it's called. Yep. All right. Yeah, it can be. It can be found. Um, but yeah, oh, that's a great one. 
and uh, um, yeah, also benefits, as you say, from having no plot. So <laughs> you can just walk in anywhere. All right, I'm gonna pick up with another one. Should we talk about another one? Sure. That's what okay. we're here for. <laughs> um, uh, swing time. I haven't seen it in years, but I've seen it, I want to say, at least uh, three times over the years and seen some of the classic uh, dance routines many, many times more than that. Uh, I love really all of the Astaire Rogers movie, and I think I've seen pretty much every movie that Fred Astaire ever um, ever sang and danced in, which is pretty much all of them. I know there were a few like on the beach where he played, you know, dramatic roles, but I, I think I've seen pretty much all of the, the classic um, dance movies. But this is, I, I, if I had to pick one, if I could, if I'm on the desert Island and I only get one, a stair Rogers film, it would be swing time, partly because of the, uh, the great songs in it, partly because of the, uh, the, uh, the presence of Eric Bloor, Remember Eric Bloor? Oh, but sir. Oh. I'm a big... Uh, also, the, vo- the voice of Thaddeus J. Frog in uh, The Wind of the Willows. He was? Eric yeah. Bloor? Who knew? The Disney one, yeah. But he, he was, I, I'm assuming, he was one of those uh, gentlemen of the time who, who had in a very effete on-screen um, persona that... Um, that worked like crazy, just whether that's the way, who knows how he really talked when you had, did you ever have lunch with Eric Bloor, Joe? <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid I, but he was a little before my time, lunch, lunch wise. <laughs> but, uh, the, you know, there were a jolly good amount of butlers to be played. <laughs> there certainly were. And he was great. And he was always, he, he had a, a, a devilish, impish gleam in his eyes. So he was always a welcome player when he turned up. Um, in an Astaire Rogers movie, as was Edward Edward Everett Horton, but is oh, he yeah. in Swing Time? Is he is in Swing Time? Edward Everett Horton is he? He's not? in mo- he's in most of them. Yeah, and of course the um, the Academy Award for Best Song, uh, the way you look tonight, mm-hmm. where where Fred arrives to pick up Ginger and she is shampooing her hair. She has this sort of you know this carefully lathered on foamed up you know, phony shampoo in her head. She looks like they've taken a can of, of Rite Aid shaving cream and just sprayed it all over her hair. And she's uh, washing her hair while he sits down at the piano and sings. Someday when I'm awfully low, when the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you and the way you look tonight. And she's so transported by the romance of his voice that she wanders into the room um, while he's playing the piano and there's that great ending where she's humiliated being seen with her hair in disarray and then runs back into the bathroom. One of the great, sweet, you know, goofy m- moments. There were Fred Astaire who really did not have any sex appeal whatsoever. He certainly, <laughs> he certainly had a romance of sorts that, that, uh, that was, you know, very very clean cut and appealing 
Now, I, I, um, I, uh, I miss her often. My grandmother, Vernetta Olson, um, we've talked about on the show, her favorite movie was Brute Force. Uh, but she um, told me often that she fell in love with my grandfather because he looked so much like Fred Astaire. Well, I, I am. Um, so he has sex appeal I, for someone. <laughs> I don't know if I ever told you this story, uh, Joe, but I met Fred Astaire oh. at Jack Lemmon's house when I was, I guess I was just 25 and I'd come to California recently to, to, um, to uh, do the same role that I had done on Broadway playing Jack Lemmon's son in the play tribute. And Jack would invite me to parties at his house. And, Often, you know, Matthau was there. A number of his close friends would be there. But there was one party that I went to, and I don't know what, I don't know why that one was different. But when I showed up, there were about two dozen people there, and they included um, Jane Fonda, Danny Kay, Gregory Peck, Frank Sinatra, and his wife Barbara, um, and. Uh, when I walked around the corner and there was Neil Simon and uh, Walter Matthau and uh, God, a, a, an actor that uh, a British actor that, that uh, Jack was working with at the time, who's the lead, the young lead in cabaret. Michael York. Michael York. And then I walked around the corner and there was Fred Astaire uh, who had recently married um, a 27 year old jockey and was very press shy because he'd been a, He'd been a widower for so many years and he'd married late in life and he was probably 74 at the time. And, uh, and I didn't know what to say to him, but he was the only person there that I was interested in meeting. And, uh, and I did finally screw up my courage and go up to him and no one, he was there with his wife and no one seemed to say a word to him. They were very shy. And it so happened that the next morning I was beginning rehearsal for a, musical review, which you saw me in, Joe, called Perfectly Frank, a Frank That's Lesser right. review, which I was doing when we shot The Howling. And, uh, and I and, said... And let me, let me tell you, the idea of watching Eddie Quist singing and dancing was very, <laughs> very disturbing. <laughs> well, we started our discussion with that problem. Once you see somebody in one role, it's a little yes. hard. Yes, yes. Well, anyway, I did say to Mr. Stair, I'm a huge fan. I, I know every... Every one of you, I have your album starring Fred Astaire, and I know every line of every song you ever sang on screen. And, and I, I, I just wanted to say hello and tell you how much I love your work. And he just smiled and nodded and said, thank you. And then there's a deadly pause. And I say, you know, tomorrow I begin rehearsal for a, for a musical review in which I'll sing and dance. And he went, oh, I'll bet that's <laughs> and I went, and then I just sort of put my tail between my legs and walked away. He wasn't rude to me. He was very sweet yeah. and wistful, but that was the end of our exchange. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Okay, so next movie? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to pick uh, A Streetcar Named Desire. It won the Pulitzer Prize, the Critics' Award, the most revealing play ever written. New York, London, Paris, Brussels, Rome, all cheered it. It's an even greater motion picture. This is the story of a woman, Blanche Dubois, who wanted so much to stay a lady. A vivid, vibrant, exciting story, because every searching chapter was written by men. Men who taught her to trust and to hope, to love and to hate. The youth who brought remembrance of yesterday. The man who was willing to take her out of the dark alleys of New Orleans. The brute who lied and cheated, who promised everything, gave nothing. Don't you ever talk that way to me. Disgusting, vulgar, greasy. But who do you think you are, a couple of queens or something? Could it be you and me, Blanche? During uh, my uh, acting studies at Circle in the Square Theater School in New York, um, we, uh, there was a lot of talk, uh, obviously, we were studying the, you know, method acting. And uh, for any young actor, Brando was an icon, uh, his famous film performances. And I remember seeing that first on a big screen um, at a theater downtown on Bleecker Street that, that did a lot of uh, revival house on Bleecker Street. And, uh, and just was, you know, transfixed by the whole movie, the way it's shot, the lighting. All the acting in it is terrific, but you know he's um, he's it's it's just an extraordinary performance. And for someone who had played the role on Broadway for many months, it just seemed so uh, spontaneous and dangerous and unrehearsed. Um, so that was uh, uh, that was a very memorable experience. That that and of course um, on the waterfront. We would we would watch them because he was famous for behavior um, in in in, a, in an era in American filmmaking when you know when that was not always popular to to have actors really inhabit a role and and that and that there was there was a, a whole other life that was going on underneath the lines or between the lines that was very um exciting to watch as a, as a young person studying acting so that's uh that is a particular uh favorite of mine we also heard all the stories i don't know which are apocryphal or not about how you know what kazan did and how some of the women in, in the uh, uh may have been unfairly kind of manipulated by behavior that was done right before the cameras rolled and stuff like that. I don't know if any of it's true. I never put much stock in any of that. But being the film historian you are, Joe, do you know any any behind the scenes stories of Streetcar? There are a lot of behind the scenes stories, but you can't trust any of them. Yeah. Well that's what I thought. So I didn't I didn't either. But we would hear that stuff and it was all just very you know, it, and it also it mirrored, I guess, a dilemma that everybody has in acting class because every everything is about you know being real and spontaneous and all that and creative conflict. But you're already as a young actor, just you're already going 
I want to be, a, uh, this is the kind of actor I want to be. I don't want to, I don't want to draw the strength out of my performance at the expense of another actor. I don't want to manipulate them or push them or put them in a, in a zone where they feel un, where they don't feel safe just to get, just to enhance my own performance. I want to be the, I want to be a collaborative actor and someone who other actors trust rather than the kind of actor who, because they're dangerous and unpredictable, you're actually scared while you're working with them. And that may create a reality that's very exciting to watch on film. But I don't want to sit and have dinner with somebody like that. So, <laughs> so I mean, all of those stories about, you know, about whether or not Brando actually exposed himself or urinated or did this or that right before they rolled the cameras in certain scenes, you know, with Vivian Leigh, I don't really want to know. I just want to, I, I look at the movie and I go, I really admire that performance. I am not, I, I could never be that kind of actor, but I admire him for it. I have to find my own, you know, I have to find my own route uh, uh, where doing things that, you know, that, that I feel are still respectful of my colleagues and all that. Um, and again, I'm just, all I'm doing is talking about rumored stories and maybe none of them are true but uh, but it still made you think about the kind of the kind of professional you wanted to be while you were studying that make any sense folks yeah i mean there's enough stories about him over the years on other productions as well that um indicate he leaned let's say in the opposite direction of from you in terms of uh that that mentality um plenty plenty well, of stories of people being terrified by by brando yeah. No, I mean, I read the biographies, uh, at least one, probably two biographies. But, but in any case, the work itself, that, the, that movie, um, it's just very exciting, exciting to watch. Now I'm going to move on to uh, one of my buddy Jack Lemmon's classics, Some Like It Hot. Not since Scarface, so much action. Not since the Marx Brothers, so much comedy. Not since the seven-year itch, so much Maryland. The best picture this year will also be the funniest. Good night, sugar. Good night, honey. There's one thing sure, boy never met girl like this before. You've never laughed more at sex or a picture about it. You stay here as long as you like. Jack may have beaten Tony to the sugar, but not for long. You're not giving yourself a chance. Don't fight it. Relax. Again, can't walk through a room and have that on and not sit down and watch it. It was great to have Jack tell me some stories of the filming of that. We talked, I remember about the, uh, the famous, um, you know, where he's dancing yeah. while they have, well, while he's basically telling Tony Curtis that he got engaged to another man with, has the famous line. Why would, why would a guy want to marry a guy? Security. <laughs> that, that, that scene and how Jack, decided or, or pitched to um, uh, Wilder. Wilder, thank you, sorry. 
it's it's happening, Joe. It's all going away. <laughs> I took the ginkgo biloba, and I still forgot. <laughs> I still forgot Billy Wilder. Um, anyway, the uh, uh, that he told him because that was really that's the hardest. It's really the hardest scene to pull off in many ways, and and have the audience buy it. Do you agree that 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 point that scene was really difficult to sell? Well, it's 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 almost it's almost amazing to think that the audience bought the entire premise of the movie at that time, <laughs> mm-hmm. and much less the ending. Well, but at least the 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 homosexual panic or whatever the the, the early stuff where it's like where where Jack's character is first being come on to, um, you know, um, by the other again. There you go, another ginkgo moment. Who's the other actor? Come on, Joe. Tony Curtis. No, 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 no. The uh, oh, the, oh, the, Joe, uh, Joe, Joey Brown. Joey Brown. Joey Brown. Yeah. Um, when when Jack is first having advances made on him, then he reacts the way any you know traditional male in drag would, that you know, with a little bit of panic. But that moment where the where he has he's in too deep, so to speak. He's now been playing a woman for a while, and he gets a proposal. And he's actually, he's actually feeling very girly and very excited. Uh, it's just one of the great um, comic scenes that it's, it's one of the, they call it a souffle, I guess, when comedy just, when it just moves quickly enough that the audiences, the, the, that uh, it, it can't, it doesn't collapse. The whole movie doesn't collapse somehow. It's just kept light enough and moves quickly enough when i first saw the movie and i and tony curtis started in on his Cary grant impression i thought this will never work this is not going to sustain the whole movie when he does that and yet he's great i've never i've never enjoyed a performance a comic performance of his more than i do in that movie i think he's equally great and marilyn despite all the stories of the difficulty of working with her is also incredibly sexy and has some of the best reactions um you know uh, funny reactions they're just moments in that movie that are so delicious you can watch them over and over and over again so what's incredible about it too is that you know at a time when so many older films are being essentially canceled for simply exhibiting the viewpoint of their time here's a movie about two men in drag one of whom gets engaged to another man from from that era it could so easily fall into the trap of uh, appearing to be wildly homophobic or transphobic by 2020 standards, and yet it doesn't. You could you could show it to an audience today who are you know primed to hate it, and it's like oh, it's 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 just almost unconsciously respectful of all of all those things. In the early 80s, I went to a screening of it um, with it with uh, an entirely gay audience on Sunset at some. Mm-hmm club that no longer exists. I don't remember why I was invited, but I sat in the first or second row and the audience screamed with laughter and talked through the whole thing and chanted lines and cheered. It was the most raucous, you know, it was meant for people who had already seen the movie many, many times, which everybody had. And there was so much love, you know, coming from from that uh, almost exclusively gay audience that I think that pretty much underwrites your point that it does yeah. not that that movie is accepted and loved uh to this day and like so many things from that era 
that that would no longer be politically correct to watch. It it, it's it, still, it uh, yeah. completely escapes that judgment. Yeah. Well, I think it's finally because it had. Well, you know what? It's, it has such sympathy for every character, and finally, the last line is kind of uh, that's the attitude of the film. Yeah, <laughs> I think perfect. the audience all screamed it the last line. Okay. Um, I, I still, Joe, I think I saw it at the TLA the first time, and I still remember that line. I mean, the movie's so great, and if you've never seen the film before, and then that line, it's 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 like being. I just felt like I'd been drop kicked out of the theater. I was laughing so hard. It was just insane. In in a way, uh, at the end of uh, the Joe Dante film Gremlins Two, when my character Mr. Forster is trapped in the restroom with an amorous <laughs> gremlin who is coming at me, coming at me dressed as a bride, and all the other gremlins apparently off camera are humming the the bridal march. Yes, the last look of my character is basically the same is the end of some like it hot when you think about it it's true you know it's true it's the well nobody's perfect look and then he decides to give into his fate am i right joe i all i know is when i saw that scene i said save the picture (laughs) (laughs) i know that joe joe at the end of that take which he says whenever i do something that's a little just a little too disgusting a regular audience he says you expect me to print that <laughs> and then i know once he said that that that's the take that'll be in the movie <laughs> you said the same thing in at the end of inner space joe after the cowboy the, the scene where the cowboy is preparing to go out on the town and i am humming i'm an old cow hand while i'm primping in front of the mirror you said exactly the same thing at the end of the take that's in the movie well, it's a great take why can i try it <laughs> Had to get the rights to the song. <laughs> uh, I'm going to move on to uh, an oddball. Ordinary People, Redford's first um, directorial effort. In this typical town, in this comfortable home, three ordinary people are about to live an extraordinary story. It's starting all over again. The lying, the covering up, the disappearing for hours. I will not stand for it. I can't stand it. I really can't. That psychiatrists are here. They all believe in dreams. I do believe in dreams. Only sometimes I want to know what's happening when you're awake. I don't want to see any doctors or counselors. This is my family. But if we have problems, then we will solve those problems in the privacy of our own home. I knew something was wrong even before he tried to kill himself. I think it is a very private matter. You never came to the hospital. Now, how do you Conrad, know about the your hospital? Your mother did come to the hospital, Conrad, and you know that. I just don't know how to deal with it anymore. Why are you hassling me? Why are you trying to make me mad? Why are you mad? No! Now, I had read the book and really loved the book. And that's often the curse when you go see the film. But I think that is a... It's it is it's so emotionally true that movie that it's 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 really painful to watch, and I think it's an extraordinary performance by Timothy Hutton. I I feel his I I I remember as when I first saw that movie. How old was I? Twenty four or five, and his character I think is seventeen, maybe sixteen, mm-hmm. seventeen. I just felt his pain so much that I wept watching that film. In fact, I went on a first date with a girl who just thought I was out of my mind 
People thought it was like she thought I I got to get away from this guy because he's a, he's a basket case. Probably thinking that I came from this incredibly dysfunctional background, which I did not. I didn't. I had nothing in common at all with his character. Uh-huh. Not the wasp upbringing. Not the sort of country clubby thing. Not the you know. Um, I mean, the only tragedy that I had suffered, and it was a big one, was my father died when I was nine years old. But I did not feel personally responsible for that, the way the young man feels about the death of his brother in the sailing accident. Anyway, his work and the unsung hero of that movie, Donald Sutherland, who often plays, in my opinion, uh, he, he often plays characters that are a little flashy or flamboyant or arch or whatever. We don't really have have a lot of performances of his that I can recall that are that nakedly emotional and and open. And I just think he's extraordinary. And and Mary Tyler Moore, whom I adored along with the rest of the world from the Dick Van Dyke show and uh, and as much of her uh, subsequent television work that I had seen, although by then by the time she had the huge success with the Mary Tyler Moore show, I was, you know, not watching much television at that time in my life, uh, is also great in the movie and got a lot of attention for playing, you know, for, for, for playing a character that had this veneer, this ironclad veneer of what she thought a, a strong, you know, suburban mom should be that stiff upper lip thing that you couldn't get around. And she could not let down and open her heart to her own son and her own husband because she had so much rage at their perfect life, having been damaged by the death of one of her children. It's really, I think, a a, a great movie, an extraordinary first effort as yeah. for, um, for a first time director. And I, again, as, as painful as it is to watch, I would, uh, I'd watch it again. I love Judd Hirsch in a very kind of comedic performance as his therapist, even though, you know, at times it almost seems a little bit out of step with the rest of the movie being so serious. But I think it, it, it lets the air, it, 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 first of all, it warm, it, it helps him earn the, um, trust, I guess, of, of his young patient. And, uh, and it also gives you a, a few you know, it releases some of the emotional weight of the rest of the film. So I think it, you know, at first, when I first saw him, I thought, oh, this is kind of out of step. But then I, I grew to really enjoy his scenes, especially on watching it again. Are you a fan of that movie, Joe? That's a good movie. It's, it's a lot better than my first movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're not, they're, they're similar themes. You're talking about rock and roll high school, Hollywood no. Boulevard? Or Hollywood Boulevard, Boulevard yeah. Hollywood Boulevard. They're often mentioned they're, in the same I, it's an ideal double feature, I would argue. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to go on to, uh, uh, let's say, I'm going to deal with the two of these together. These, these are two entries, and I know they're very common, The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. When The Godfather first came out, because of all of the controversy in Italian-American communities that they were protesting that it was a negative stereotype that the film was going to portray, I don't know if it's because of that or just because at that time in my life when I was 18, 19 years old, I just didn't want to be told which were the movies I had to see. So if something was wildly popular, I often avoided it. I didn't see Jaws. 
for years after it came out because it's like, ah, eh, everybody goes to Jaws. And the same thing with the first Godfather movie. It's like, nah, I don't need to go see that, you know? So I didn't see it until, I don't know, I don't know, two or three years, I think, after his first release. And of course, I completely loved it. I probably went finally because of Brando's performance, because while I was studying acting and I wanted to see what he did with that role more than wanting to see a giant, you know, kind of, um, uh, what's the word, sort of soap opera about an, you know, an Italian mafia family. But uh, I just think that movie is, uh, I think the performances are great. The characters are so varied. The, it's beautifully shot. And, and Brando is, you know, is, it, is another one of his, uh, it's another one of his performances where, um, you know, he surprises you. His behavior is great. Uh, he manages to change, you know, his appearance and the way he speaks so much. And I just, you know, I, I love that movie. It was also a time when I, this is right around where I'm deciding to become an actor. I'm studying an acting class. And suddenly being an Italian American actor was not, was, was now a good thing. It wasn't, you know, uh, in, in my teens in high school, there were no Italian Americans starring in movies that I was aware of. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly in my early twenties, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, a lot of the biggest young stars were Italian Americans. So it was also inextricable in my memory of, of the Godfather and the Godfather part two are the feelings that, Oh, this is a good time to have to be an actor whose name ends in a vowel. And that's great. <laughs> that makes me feel good. Having said all that, I rarely ever play Italians. Just because <laughs> I, I went to prep school, so I, ne- I never get the professional Italian roles, as I call them, the Dems, Ds, and Does roles that some of my best friends, Joe Pantoliano and all that, excel in. I don't get cast at them. I play, I play many more rabbis <laughs> than I do you know, gangsters. Although now I'm, I'm on a show playing a Jewish gangster. So it's kind of a little of both, but, uh, without, you know, um, and the other thing about Godfather part two, that is in my memory. I, uh, I have a cousin who's now retired, but for many years he was a scenic artist and he worked on Godfather part two, uh, spray paintings, you know, uh, all of the cereal boxes that were supposed to look like 1907 or whatever the movie was, you know, when they, when they took over Avenue A on the Lower East Side and turned it into, I think, um, uh, not Sullivan Street, but they turned it into the street uh, where the San Gennaro Italian Street Festival is in Little Italy. And they redressed an entire old block to look exactly like that period in time. Uh, so I got to visit the set. So I saw, you know, De Niro at 27 or 28, you know, all dressed, ready to go and, and, and shoot somebody on camera. And, uh, and it was a, it's a, it's a fond memory that I visited that set. I visited, uh, I think the whiz when the whiz was my cousin worked on the sculpture team that redressed world trade plaza for the, for the whiz, which of course is now a very bittersweet memory for any number of reasons. So, so that's another reason why The Godfather looms in my mind, because it's the mm. first major, cla- it, it's, it's the only major classic film, other than my Joe Dante credits, where I was actually on the set. Mm. And, uh, and so that, 
that that's a, a meaningful moment. So I'm down to just three. Are, well, I want to I want to ask one thing, maybe more of Joe's. But how how are we all feeling about the new version of Godfather Three that is coming our way? Are we, well, I haven't have, we haven't seen it, have we? Are we cautiously optimistic? Are we? Well, I think that the, I think the flaws will still be there. I, I you know I, I don't know that some of them are fixable. Uh, I mean, when it's the only picture I ever saw where Eli Wallach gives a bad performance, and I don't know how you fix that. You know. Um, different tanks, just have less of them. I don't know. I, it's it's. Listen, he's he's a great filmmaker, and if he thinks he can improve it, then you know, good. Yeah, please no, fill I'm, me in, guys. They're recutting oh, Godfather. 3. He's doing a new I, edit. I, I, yeah, he's doing a new edit. Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm I'm hopeful. It's got to be. I I I don't. I don't think of it as a Godfather movie, but I don't hate it the way other people do. I just think of it as a different gangster movie made by some of the people who made The Godfather. It was so, I remember the plot seemed to be all over the place. Yeah. And I remember and the, that. Oh, maybe they'll fix that. <laughs> and his, that was the one his daughter had such a major role in. And yeah, since she's miscast and it doesn't work and it's, uh, that's kind of embarrassing. Right. Yeah. No, I, I just remember, yeah. Well, and when will this happen? Well, it, it won't get a, obviously nothing. Get, and it would get a theatrical release with an empty theater or what? Uh, like all movies. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, what, that's what, what are they doing with anything? I don't know. It's in a double bill with Tenet. Just yeah. in time for the pandemic, the re-release of Godfather 3. Yeah. Oh, yeah, released in theaters in December. Mm -hmm. well, we can only hope. Yes. Well, you know, who Andy Garcia, I thought, was very good in it. In yeah. Respect. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, isn't George Hamilton in it, too? Yes. Yes, he plays. Yes, he's there. not bad, huh? Yeah, and and who is the other? George Hamilton has a lengthy scene with another prelate or someone else from the Vatican. Who's that actor? Oh, I haven't seen it since it came God. out. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, well, I'm glad that nobody's memory is is any better than mine. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> you can't remember everything. All right, I got three more guys now. Joe, you're barely speaking. Am I supposed to be doing all the talking, or I? Yes, that's the way it works. <laughs> no, I wish you know so much more about this. I wish you would just stop me and say, "Okay, Bob, here's it, it, what you." They're listening to hear your take on these. Yeah, right? no, unfortunately, we're we're here for you. Look, the, the, here's the scam of this show, uh, Bob. Mm -hmm. We we came up with a format that um, you know, Ileana Douglas came on our show early on, and she's got a great podcast where she does these wonderful thorough in-depth interviews with her guests and she spends days researching them. And um, when we were first talking, she said, just make sure you do your research. And I laughed. And I was like, we've come up with a format where we don't have to do any. We make the guests do all the work. Well, yeah. Um, so. I, I thought we were just going to schmooze for 60 minutes about all of our projects together, Joe. I didn't know I had to, I didn't know I had to know. No, thank God I wouldn't put you through that again. <laughs> well, Anyway, I, as you can see, I did give some thought to the movies themselves, but yes. I didn't like rewatch all 10 of them the way. No. So you don't have to. Them. It's just your impressions. We can't yeah. be constantly watching movies all the time, every day. Yeah. Yes. Well, though now I, frankly, I have the time. <laughs> um, all right. So I've got three left and I'm going to start with uh, Alien. because it's the perfect it's the perfect crossover between a horror movie and a sci-fi movie uh it's really the first sci-fi movie 
I remember seeing where there was an incredible gritty sense of place aboard that ship. Like you really yeah. felt you were some, you were, you were on a vessel, you got all the sort of claustrophobia. It wasn't glamorous and spotless and the future, you know, looked Looks dirty, looked used. Exactly. That was all really cool. It's beautifully lit. The cast is extraordinary. It's also the first time I feel like, you know, um, there were one or two, there were moments in Star Wars, for instance, where you saw like the battered grill of the flying car, which is pretty cool. But I, I don't feel like we ever saw like blue collar workers in space before. Right, like Yafit Kodos. Yeah, but kind of Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, the two guys smoking their cigarettes, complaining about their shares. (laughs) No, it was just, it's it's great. I'd never seen anything like it. I knew Sigourney Weaver very slightly because Mm -hmm. she was in the drama school when I was an undergrad at Yale. And and we were both in the chorus of the Stephen Sondheim, The Frogs at the Yale swimming pool, which if you're a Sondheim fan, it's like it's like next to meeting the Pope, you know, to, to meet someone who was in that production because it was so storied. Bert Shevlov, who directed, who wrote the book for, I think, Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum and directed it. Um, and he came up to Yale and, and I was just in the chorus. But I remember him saying, you're the most unprofessional group of people I've ever met in my life. And, and, and I wanted to say. We are unprofessional. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a seven. I'm an 18 year old biology major who's doing this for six dollars an hour. But I did. Um, but I sang. Uh, I learned. I, all I did was sing in the chorus. But Sigourney was singing right next to me in a in a mm. toga and looked great in a toga then. So, um, but then when she went off and starred in a movie, it, we were all excited because it was, you know, someone that felt slightly like a colleague, even though she was a few years older, you know, getting this starring in her first film. In fact, there's a story she told when she she uh, went down. She had an audition for someone, some director who was very rude to her. I don't know if it was a movie or a play. I think it was a theater piece. And 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 he kept and he looked at her resume and went, Sigourney, Sig- Sigourney, what kind of name is that? How's that going to look in a marquee? And she said, well, if you want to know, there's one at Times Square right now. <laughs> you know, so she got, it, was a great, it was a great moment because oh. Alien hadn't come out yet. <laughs> there was her name in Times Square. Going to so she, she managed to shut that guy up pretty well. Oh, that's fantastic. Sure. Yeah. All right. And now a comedy. Uh, I really want to know what Joe thinks of this movie because I know it's flawed and kind of falls apart at the end, but I really love Death Becomes Her. Every treasure on earth to be young at heart. Some people will go to any length to stay young forever. Is that someone? It's Madeline Ashton. She was a big star in the 60s. I thought she was dead. Oh, madam, you look younger every day. Thank you, Rose. But Madeline Ashton and her old friend, Helen Sharp. I've lost men to her before. Mad hell. Are about to go <laughs> too far. A touch of magic. Drink that potion, and you'll never grow even one day older. Bottoms up. No warning. Now a warning? Siempre viva! Live forever! No, it's got some great stuff. Sidney Pollock's greatest performance. I, I totally agree. That is a lesson, <laughs> a lesson in comic acting. Sidney Pollock is hilarious. And when he, 
when he has a heart attack and dies. <laughs> and they're, they're, they, when they have the paddles on him, when they, the camera just breezes by. Him. It's, it's the funny, he is hilarious in that movie. And, and, it's a, and I, I always, I rewatch that scene as a lesson in, you know, in, in perfect comic acting because he's oh, wow. completely real. The pace is extraordinary. And the panic, his risability is so great. Um, and Bruce Willis, who I've never been a huge fan of, is, in my, has never given a funnier performance than that because he's playing a character rather than playing a hero, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of. Uh, and I really like him in that. And of course, Meryl Streep, for whatever you think of Meryl, when she was at Yale, she was a comedy star in the drama mm. school. That's what she was sort of known for. Not all this sort of heavy lifting dramatic stuff. She was hilarious in Midsummer Night's Dream. I saw her in a play called The Idiots Karamazov by Al Albert Inarato and Christopher Durang. She was the funniest actress you'd ever seen in her early 20s. Yeah. And then, of course, she, you know, becomes, she does Sophie's Choice, and she, then she becomes the accent and heavy emotive thing. That, that was her first stardom. But to see her, uh, to see her play kind of balls out comedy in this, and I also, Goldie Hawn is a very lovable and charming yeah. performer. And of course, the theme of trying to stay perpetually young is one that is, uh, is, is always fun to see the lengths that people go to and the disasters they create in so doing. So I really enjoy. I need to I go back. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember any of that. I don't remember enjoying any of it. And, um, no, it's got, some, it's got okay. a lot of good stuff. It does, it, he's right. It does kind of mess up at the end. It, just, it, it goes off and tangents that are sort of like well you know this has been on for a little while yeah you know? they kind of made multiple endings is what i heard and yeah they didn't, they didn't quite know how to do it but the great the great scenes in that and also the shocking visual effects we hadn't seen anyone yeah. with their with their a hole blown in their torso before their head on backward <laughs> now oh, yeah. yes i do i also i had a weird i had a weird aversion to meryl street for a few years that um it was all kinds of snobbery, I'm sure, or reverse snobbery. But I remember seeing Angels in America and getting to the end of it and wondering who, where did they find that, that all, that must be a real rabbi that they got and they taught him some lines or something because he's so clearly not an actor. He's someone just playing himself because he's so, and it's Meryl Streep. <laughs> I was like, she just, she just got past all my, all my, you know, barriers and resistances. I was like, oh shit, I, I got to go back and you know, revise my opinion. And I, I love no, her. She, she's a genius. I remember coming home from Yale after I had seen her my sophomore year. She was in the drama school. And I said, Mom, I, I, you know, there's this really great actress that's studying at the Yale drama school named Meryl Street. And my mother says, Street. Street. My mother never heard of her. She said, Street. I said, No, Street. <laughs> I said, She said, Meryl Street. And I said, No, Street. She said, What kind of name is that? <laughs> so, so she got the same kind of, I guess, comeuppance, you know, that Sigourney Weaver did too. Yeah. Well, there's a great too. Have you ever seen the the John Cazale documentary? No, but I did see them together. Oh. They, um, you know, when they were together, they yeah. came. They actually saw. I did a, I did a play once that they came and saw. We were a little bit of a tempest in a teapot. I did a play about Jack Kerouac, with Lane Smith playing Kerouac. And John Spencer was in it, and uh, and, I, and I played Allen Ginsberg from age sixteen to forty, and uh, and it was an amazing experience. It was the first 
like great challenging role I think I ever had in New York. I was 20 or 21 years old. And Meryl uh, came with John Cazale and that was incredibly cool. They all came to see Lane Smith because, you know, John was in the actor's studio and Lane was in the studio. So anyway, and, and that was, I know the, that was the great personal tragedy, I think yeah. that, you know, that informed because they were very deeply in love and for him to die of, I think a brain tumor or something yeah. at, at that young age. And he was such a, his, his performance in Dog Day Afternoon and the Godfather movies and all that, he was so sweet. And Indian Once the Bronx or something like that, the play done on Broadway with Pacino, which I've only read about. Really a, a great talent. You know, yeah. and when we lose somebody like that, as we just did with Chadwick Boseman, you know, you lose someone that has this, just this, this, this not only an extraordinary talent, but they're just such a wonderful role model in in the industry and all that and do so many important outreach things and all that you go you know it's it's a loss on so many different levels it's just you know and i and i john cazal i think was was like yeah, that i felt like he was just getting started there's a there's there's just a wonderful scene it's terrible i can't remember if it's de niro or pacino it's one of them telling the story of Kizal coming, running up to them and going, hey, come see my girl, my new girlfriend. She's in a play. She's going to be the greatest actor of her generation. Yeah, and <laughs> and they right. go off and it's Meryl Streep. Yeah. Was it 27 Wagons Full of Cotton? What was the play? Was oh, I, I don't remember. I don't remember. But what's, it's a the, wonderful what's the doc. name of this documentary so I can see it? Oh, what is the doc, Joe? The John Kizal doc? Yeah. I have no idea. Um, hang on. I will have that for you. I then. thought you guys knew everything. I'm really disappointed. Joe does. <laughs> Um, he keeps saying that. I don't know the name of the John Cazale documentary. It's called. How many <laughs> other people out there know the name of the John Cazale? It's called. I knew it was you. I knew it was you. Yeah. Okay. I'm only teasing it, Joe, because I feel comfortable doing that. All right. So is it? But now I don't feel comfortable anymore, so I'm going to stop. All right. <laughs> so what's your last picture? Last one. It's a classic. I I, uh, I know you love Touch of Evil more, but I'm putting Citizen Kane. No, oh, I love Citizen Kane. I, I I I may love it more. I mean, Touch of Evil is the one that uh, is accessible for everybody because it's a film noir, and so you can show it to people and they get it. You know, Citizen Kane is a movie that uh, is very rooted in its time, and uh, has been so praised. And, and possibly even overpraised by, you know, critics for the last several generations, that uh, a lot of people, when finally introduced to it, just are underwhelmed because it doesn't, they don't really see the greatness of it. And they don't, and they don't, and a lot of times they don't get the humor of it because mm -hmm. it's, it's a very funny movie. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very sad movie, but it's, a, it's, and it's, it's the only movie where he actually got to do everything the way he wanted Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and it's, 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 I, I remember seeing it for the first time on television, uh, when I was a kid and I remember the, the ending, the last shot and the music cue were so incredibly moving to me. And I couldn't have been more than like 14, um, that summing up a man's life with something that he had lost and, uh, didn't even consciously remember. I don't think what it was. He was always looking for it, but he didn't seem to know really what it was. He says at one point, I'm, I, the, the girl asks him, where are you going? He says, I'm going to a warehouse in search of my youth. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really heavily layered 
story. And it's cinematically, it's, it's just can't be beat. And he did, uh, first of all, if he only acted in this Ben movie, his performance as an actor is, is enough to have been yeah. historic, you know, for someone who was 26 years old yeah. to, to play yeah. that character from basically his early 20s into, what, 80 at the end, mm -hmm. he's supposed to be. Um, and also, I guess because it's the first time he was directing, he didn't know what you could and couldn't do, so he found out a way to do everything. I mean, there are shots in there we've never seen before. Well, yeah, Greg Toland to help him. I mean, that, that, was, uh, that was a collaboration to the point where he put both their names on the title card. Mm -hmm. um, he put as a co-director? Uh, they, they both get, no, not as a co-director, but just on the same card. The director and the DP. Uh, um, and uh, you know, I and also uh, the the things that I learned about that movie about you know time compression and montage and all that that great sequence over the breakfast table where they summarize the entire mm -hmm. marriage in ninety seconds or whatever it is two minutes that are unforgettable and 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 uh, that you just don't you know that I I hadn't seen before the angles. Just the angles that he shoots things, uh, you know, when he's older. Some of the some of those incredibly low angles when he's old in the empty house to emphasize, you know, that the huge emptiness of the house, the way where he puts the camera and all that to make him to to emphasize his aloneness and all that. Anyway. Uh, so that's it. Uh, but now I have a lightning round for you, Joe. I want to ask what you think. Um, I, uh, a, a runner up for me is a film I know you love well, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Yep. You mean the, the good one? The good one, yeah, the good one. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Drew Pearson. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. And how did Robert Wise direct so well in so many different because he was a very talented guy and, the, and everybody's always knocking him because his movies didn't all look the same and he didn't have a particular theme that he followed all the time. He was, a, he was essentially a journeyman director uh, and he was very, very, very good at it. And of course, he did learn a lot from Wells. Uh, he, he edited Citizen Kane. Um, he misedited <laughs> Magnificent Ambersons because Wells was gone and the studio was chopping it up. Uh, but he was extremely talented guy and a very nice guy. He was. I, I sat next to him at a dinner once, uh, shortly before he passed away, because I met him through a group of friends, and I got to talk a little about the day of the Earth. I mean, I, all I did was talk about the range of the kind of things he did and how impressive that was to me. And he was very gracious, and, mm -hmm. you know, had and had the patience to listen to some relatively young idiot uh, talk about his work. So. He was he was very gracious. Did you get to did you see him around the, the DGA? Yes, I, I had a lot of uh, interactions with him. He was very, very, very good guy. And did he 
if, did he ever say that he'd seen one of your movies, for example? Mm, I don't remember him ever stooping that low, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So another movie, I remember having my first uh, dirty dream uh, after seeing Father Goose. Uh, and I had a dirty <laughs> dream about uh, Leslie Caron, who played a nun in the movie. That shows how screwed up I am. I think I was probably 13, 14 years old. I thought that bore, just because it's so, you know, Humiliating, I thought I would make that confession to you now, Joe. <laughs> Father Goose, starring Cary Grant and Leslie Carone, shacked up on a Pacific island with seven little castaways. He was gracious, gallant, hospitable, and considerate. We could all do with some food. And always a gentleman. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go to bed. She was thoughtful, gentle, tolerant. I asked you to stop drinking, but you wouldn't. Where is it? The children were helpful and loving. And the adults brought out the best in each other. Maybe if you stop straightening pictures and let men wear their own pants, maybe they'd be able to touch you without asking permesso. Do you remember Father Goose? Uh, it wasn't my favorite. No, it's a, it's a stupid movie, right? <laughs> but Cary Grant still it's looks stupid. great. And Leslie Caron was pretty, for a, you know, she was yeah, for she a was nun. Pretty, yeah, for a nun. She was, all right. All right. And uh, also, honorable mention, I picked uh, Some Like It Hot, but The Apartment I probably liked. Uh, oh, yeah. Almost as well. Although it's, I know it's pretty sentimental, but it's awfully great. And uh, uh, I also have honorable mention here for Singing in the Rain obvious reasons and i yeah, can do uh, can't beat that can't beat that i know every note of every song in that and now um in the same way that you said when you saw when you saw um uh, citizen kane as a young man on television how you were very you, you were kind of caught off guard with your emotional reaction um i the movie of the great white hope before that was done he obviously did it on Broadway. So the first time I ever remember um, kind of being shocked, and I, now I know I told you the story, Joe, because you directed James Earl Jones in the second Civil War, and I was lucky enough to have a scene with him, and I That's told right. him, I told scene, him too. this story. I was sitting, I was young enough to be sitting on the floor in the television room at my house. I don't know if I was doing homework or whatever. I think I was, I want to say I was about nine or 10. The Great White Hope must have played on Broadway in 60 three or four because the movie was 67 something like that mm -hmm. maybe it was so i'm like i'm somewhere between nine and 11 years old and i don't know what the tony awards are and i've never been to a broadway show and i'm just playing it and then i hear this guy boys start talking right and beating his chest and it's james earl jones doing a scene from the on the tonys in in, in black and white because i know we had a color television but the the Tonys were broadcast still in black and white. And he was, it was transfixing. It was just like, what, what is this? What am I watching? And it was the first time I ever remember being captured by a performance like that, not just a story, because I wasn't seeing the whole story. I was just seeing some guy open his mouth and do a few lines and I was riveted. And then of course, and, and the movie, I really loved that movie. I know the movie probably has, some flaws considered to be certain too stagey in some ways or whatever. Um, I think it, but it, 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 it immortalizes his performance and Jane Alexander, who's equally great. Mm -hmm. 
in that movie. And I think that is a, a, a perhaps an underappreciated film that everyone ought to see. Um, and uh, and I think I'm I think I'm done. I think that's all I got. <laughs> well, you managed to fill up the time nicely. I thought that was fantastic. That well, was really I I thought you guys were going to talk more, and I as much as I love the sound. Of no, voice, if we talked more, then we wouldn't hear as much of you. That's and right. you're on every week. Yeah, <laughs> you only get one. All right. Well, as long as you're as, as long as your listeners you make me sound good, cut out the incredibly stupid parts. <laughs> there were there were none, sir. Uh, All right. Right. about ten minutes. Sure. But yeah, uh, and, and definitely leaving in the cheesesteak stuff. That was great. That was gold. Yeah. Yeah, it was all gold. It was all Philly centric. That's right, Philly centric. All right, man. Thanks, Thanks, Bob. Someday when I'm awfully low and the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you and the way you look tonight. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That Made Me. Stay safe out there, folks. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.